Jericho Road is a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church. It's a Sunday school class that happens at 9.30 on Sunday mornings, and you're welcome to join us. These days, we're studying the world of Jesus, and we hope to get you thinking about old stories in a new way. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Jericho Road, and I hope that you will remember that you can ask me questions throughout this podcast. You can send those to rwebster at saint-lukes.com. Remember to spell out saint, rwebster at saint-lukes.com, and I'll even try to incorporate questions into future episodes, but I've been hearing some great stuff from you guys, and it really is fun to talk. We call this podcast The World of Jesus, but lately we've been in a place called Corinth, which is in Greece and far away from places that Jesus would have known. I mean, far from Galilee or Jerusalem or anything like that. But as I like to say, in the year 51, a businessman named Paul came through there and started a movement and turned their world into the world of Jesus. And we can learn from them because we can make our world the world of Jesus as well. But for this episode, I want to go back up the road, still in the year 51, but back up in the road to a place that Paul traveled through before he got to Corinth. And it's found in Acts chapter 16. You know, when you're trying to track Paul, you can either find Paul in the letters that he wrote in the backs of our Bibles or in the story of Acts, which is a sequel to Luke. And in Acts chapter 16, we learn that Paul went through a town called Philippi. This was his first journey into Europe. Uh, and it's a, it's a place that you can find on a map today. It's in the far eastern part of Greece, the northeastern part, uh, neighboring now the new country of Macedonia. And like the Corinthians, Paul started a movement of people there who were trying to be different in the way that the Bible asks us to be different, following something that Paul called the gospel. And then after he left them, he wrote to them. We're going to talk about it because the letter that he wrote to Philippians is a different letter. The community that he started there ended up being a very different community than the one in Corinth because the context was different. So to get you thinking about it, you know, I want to tell you about an east-west road that you can find today. I love to play this game that I call a get, which is where you can find something and then locate it in Scripture. I mean, find something physically and then find a chapter and verse to, you know, to touch it, if you will. Uh, There's a road, an east-west road that you can find today running through uh, Eastern Europe. It's called the Via Ignatia. It starts somewhere really in modern Albania, runs through the Balkans and all the way through northern Greece and then on into northern uh, modern European Turkey. And you can find paving stones today. Right outside of Philippi is a get. Uh, you can look at the stones that St. Paul walked on as he entered the city. And I, the reason why this road gets me thinking about Philippi is because there was another way that Paul stayed in touch. Now, he stayed in touch by traveling somewhere and visiting people and starting a movement, but then he also stayed in touch with the letters that we have in the backs of our Bibles. And this morning, we're going to think about Roman letters because Roman letters were very common in their world made possible by stuff like these good roads. Uh, Roman letters were first century archaeology, if you will, that you can find in the backs of your Bible. And so these letters that Paul would write were meant to be read in groups. They were more like letters to the editor, to the newspaper. And here's the point that I really want to drive home today. If letters were common, so were the forms of letters, or so were the expected forms. And in this case, a Roman letter would always come with a signature. Now, a signature conveys mood or tone or distance, and hey, we do the same thing. Whether you're sending an email, a text, or a handwritten note, you might say something like, best, rich, sincerely, rich, with concern, 
rich. I've got my own story. It seems like every time I leave town, I, I get hacked by some computer genius who gets into our database and they'll write a letter sort of from me, right? They'll open up a Gmail account and my full name is Richmond. So it'll be Richmond Webster and it'll say, hello, how are you? This is Richmond. Could you send me some money, please? Or could you buy a gift card? And I'll explain to the staff that I never ask for money that way and I'll never ask for a gift card. And then the, and then the signature on the letter, usually because some computer genius thinks I'm a, I'm a minister that I'll talk this way, will say, blessings, Richmond. And that's when the staff really knows it ain't from me because I'm not the kind of preacher that says, blessings, blessings. Uh, but those are signatures. Now, in the case of a Roman letter, a signature would also tell you what kind of mood Paul would be in or if he's got some sort of concern, but the signatures come at the beginning which tell you right away what Paul is about to say. And I'll offer you just a few examples, and we'll get started. If you were to read Paul's letter to the Romans, which is a little different than the others, because unlike unlike his letter to Corinth or his letter to Philippi, uh, Paul has had time to reflect on his letter to the Romans. It is more of a piece of theology. It's his magnum opus after years of travel and adventures and misadventures and mistakes and watching people uh, fail to be different in the way that the Bible asks them to be different. It's his take on who Jesus is and who we are, and also Jesus' place in the longer story beginning with the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, It is a tight piece of theology, but also Paul's never been to Rome yet. So his signature is six verses long, and it's full of his credentials and a summary of what he's about to say, which means that you can tell from the letter he doesn't know them yet. He's selling his idea on the Church of Rome, and he's selling the idea of his using Rome as a launching pad for new missionary journeys. But right away, you know that this is a different kind of letter. I'm going to read another example to you. This is the Galatians. Now, this is this is a signature that tells you right away uh, something's going on, and I'll try not to channel Paul too much as I read it. It goes like this. Galatians uh, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle, <laughs> sent by neither human commission nor from human authorities, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the members of God's family who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Well, you can tell right away, uh, Daddy's mad. And this letter is cold, and it's official, and there is tension here. And I could summarize Galatians this way. We'll, we'll spend some time in Galatians in future podcasts, but I can summarize the problem. Uh, Paul started a movement that he called the gospel, and then he left them. And their particular problem is they wanted to make it the gospel point five. They just wanted to add something to it. And what Paul wanted them to know is you can't add anything. Specifically with the case of the Galatians, they thought, this is great. Let's let's accept Jesus as our Lord and add circumcision. And, and we'll just be a little bit a little bit better, a little, go a little deeper. And Paul said, you can't go deeper when it comes to a relationship with Christ than Christ. And so that's the whole point of that letter. But he's mad, and so he's writing them right away to get right to the point. Okay, so now you're getting it, right? Signatures are going to tell you what you're about to read. Now I'll read the signature to the letter in Philippi, and let's see if we can't enter their world. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll read one phrase again, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the overseers. That's probably the oldest manuscript, not bishops and deacons. That That's a little 
that was a little bit of a later addition or a later development in the church. The church wasn't quite ready for to look exactly like the way we have church now. Uh, but but anyway, needless to say, it all says the same thing. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. You know, there's another word here that I want us to dig into a little bit, and that is the word servant, because more accurately, that word uh, is described slave or translated slave. I'm trying to tell you that here in this signature, there are no credentials, there's no tension, and Paul is warm and he's a slave to them. I mean, that's the better translation of the word. I mean, there you go for a signature right there. Uh, He loves them and he's a slave. And Timothy's a slave and they're to be slaves to each other. Now, this gets right by us because it's Bible talk, but it was a shock to them. Remember, these are people who are hearing these words for the first time. And living as Roman people, they lived in a highly stratified world, just like our world, uh, with, with rungs of a ladder, except there's very, very few movement upward. What you did is you tried to live uh, your life and carry on to the next generation. You just want to hang on to the rung that you're on. I mean, there's no climbing, but you didn't want to lose, and slaves are on the bottom. I read somewhere that one-third of the population of the Italian boot were enslaved people. One-tenth of the population of the empire at large, which would include Philippi, were enslaved people. And they were everywhere. Uh, Slaves could be teachers. They could be doctors. They could be any race of people. They were usually a people who were conquered by Rome or, or left behind by Rome or perhaps even thrown away by their families. In other words, they were throwaway people who were invisible And you could do anything to them without recourse. Nobody wanted to be a slave. And yet Paul identifies with these. He says, I'm a slave to you. It's a theme that will flavor the entire letter. Paul's a slave, just as God became a slave, just as they are slaves to each other, and no one gets left behind. This signature is a remarkable statement right away in chapter 1, verse 1. I've got my own story. We've got, we've all got these little stories that are ours alone, but these are stories that form us and shape us and reveal who God is for us. Um, when I was a young man and, and dreaming of going to seminary, there was nothing, there was nothing, uh, that was a faraway dream. Uh, but I made a friend who belonged to an African American church in a poor part of Montgomery. And all he wanted to do was to feed his neighborhood. And we sort of hooked cooked up an idea to start a soup kitchen. At lunch during the weekdays, uh, my job was to secure donations and then help him as much as I could. Quickly, we were in over our head. We, we had lines out the door of the church and around the corner, hungry, hungry people, hungry children, hungry families, hungry parents, people taking off work to come eat there. I mean, it was it was really overwhelming. And I raised as much food as I could and and quickly learned that we, we could not even begin to scratch the amount of need in that community in terms of, of a feeding ministry. But I remember one day I was took off for lunch from where I worked and could run over there, and I was serving behind the steam table. And our menu that day happened to be ham sandwiches and cling peaches, I'll never forget, and green bean medley, which is just some big pot of you know, industrial beans that we that we had secured, and we were we were serving those up, and people lined out the door, and I looked and I saw the sandwich the sandwich bread really going down. We were down to a few slices, and I yelled out to my friend Henry that uh, we're going to have to change the menu to from ham sandwiches to ham slices and cling peaches and green bean medley because we were running out of bread. And just as we were serving, 
uh, this lovely woman, older woman, just walked in. She had two big grocery sacks, and she was chuckling to herself. And guys, I'm under the radar. There's no way to find this soup kitchen. We haven't advertised the soup kitchen. Gosh, if we had, we, we really would have been overwhelmed. And we hadn't really told anybody about our soup kitchen outside of outside of the immediate streets around the church. But she walked in, and she just chuckled to herself, and she said, y'all going to think I'm crazy. Uh, but God told me to buy you bread and bring it over here. God told me to buy you bread. Now, I will never forget that moment because I witnessed a miracle that could have come right out of the fields of Galilee, the feeding of the 5,000. But more specifically, I learned that morning that God was watching us, that we were overwhelmed, that we were a drop in the ocean, but God was watching. And more importantly, God was watching them. God was watching hungry people and bringing them to us. So for Paul to say that he's a slave, He's acknowledging that no one is invisible and everyone matters to God. That's just that's just one point of the signature. Hey, there's still more. They're a team. Paul includes Timothy here. If you were to go back to Acts, and remember I told you you can find Paul in Acts or in the letters. In Acts chapter 16, we learn that Timothy is a founder of this movement in Philippi along with Paul. And then in Philippians chapter 2, he's an emissary back to them. So they're a team. But the Philippians are a team too because he calls them saints. That's the next word that I want us to think about. You know, if, if slave is a key word uh, in this letter, saint is also a key word. I'm going to go back to something that we talked about last fall in earlier podcast when we were in the book of Exodus, and that is the, the giving of the Ten Commandments. It, I'll bet that if you go dig around in your Bible at home right now, you're going to find the same thing. There may be a Bible out here that does this, but I don't think so. I was always expecting the Ten Commandments to be easier to find. I'm going to tell you, you can find them in Exodus chapter 20, but if I didn't tell you that, you'd have to dig for just a minute. I mean, our Bibles don't have some sort of blank page with a lot of margin around it with God's Ten Commandments, maybe a scroll, you know, behind there. No, stone tablets would be better. Two stone tablets with all ten rules, just something really out there for us to read. Instead, the Ten Commandments are deeply embedded in a story, and the Hebrews told it that way, and the Hebrews wanted to tell it that way. What this says is something very, very important theologically, and that is that the giving of the law is embedded in our lives. It's embedded in our everyday lives. Our story, our stories have God within them, right? I said we all have stories to tell, so our stories reveal, if you will, the character of God and the law of God. And so what you have in your Bibles in Exodus is a lot of story, and then the giving of the law, and then a lot of story. So what I'm about to read to you is a buildup to the giving of the law. It's Exodus 19, beginning with the third verse, and here it goes. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the Israelites, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the Israelites. Okay, here's where I'm going. If you were to go to Philippi, and just kind of drop down in a time machine and look at their church, uh, they would do some things that were familiar to you. They would sing hymns, and they would share uh, what we now call the Lord's Supper, uh, and they would read the Bible. But the Bible that they had would be the Hebrew Scriptures. They didn't have the Gospels yet, and the Hebrew Scriptures that they read in Philippi were written in Greek. This is very, very important, because in Greek, the word for holy nation is hagioi. 
That's also the word for saint. What Paul is saying in the signature here is that Romans living in Philippi are living the same story as Exodus. They too are to be saints or holy nation, just the way God asked the Israelites to be saints, to be a holy nation. And it's here that Paul makes the big leap that connects them to the older story and connects us to the older story as well, those of us who call ourselves Christians and followers of Jesus. They are saints in Christ Jesus, which means that in Jesus, they're grafted onto the Hebrew scriptures. When I was a little boy growing up in public school in Alabama, the Gideons would all give us a Bible in the um, in the fifth grade. I'll never forget this. Gave us this tiny little Bible that said New Testament and Psalms. You might remember getting one. You could stick it in your back pocket. New Testament and Psalms, as if the only thing worth saving in the Old Testament would be the Psalms. But you see, Paul's signature here reveals to us that the Hebrew scriptures are our scriptures as well. The Old Testament is our story, just like it's the story of the Hebrew people, the chosen people. Now we are grafted onto that vine, not converted to Judaism, but rather enabled to live different the way the Bible asks us to be different. I've had the great pleasure, or I sh- maybe I should say challenge, of teaching our ninth grade confirmation class at, at St. Luke's, and they're wonderful, but they're, you know, they're ninth graders. And, and the class I had a couple of weeks ago was how to apply the Bible. And God bless them. They, they really hung in there with me. They did the best they could. Their eyes glaze over, and I try to tell jokes and make it, you know, meaningful, but I, I'm old and, and they're young, and it's just, we do the best we can, right? So I did get their attention when I said, does anybody remember seventh grade? Everybody remember seventh grade? Well, they, I got their attention there. Everybody remembers seventh grade. Seventh grade is terrifying. Seventh grade is horrible. Seventh grade is full of hormones. Seventh grade is full of fear that you're not going to belong to a group. Seventh grade is competitive. Seventh grade is just, right, it's just pretty awful. And I said, well, if the Bible tells us one thing from page one to a thousand and one is that will you be different than seventh grade? Because it's always seventh grade. Will you be different? When I say, will you be different in the way that God asks us to be different? Is will you be different than seventh grade? Can you, can you not let anyone sit alone in the lunchroom? Can you stand up to bullies? Can you do justice? Can you, can you love God and your neighbor? Can you be a better humanity than seventh grade? And you see, that's where I got them. And that's where the Hebrew story now becomes our story. The whole of the Bible becomes our story. And it leads to a really practical application. I believe as Christians and anybody who claims to be the people of God, we've got two addresses. We've got our earthly home and we've got our heavenly home. The home we long for changes how we see everything here. We know one day that in Christ we will go to to heaven with him and, and, and live forever. But now it changes how we see everything in the here and now. If we're doctors, we can become Christian doctors. If we're business people, we can be Christian business people. If we're students, we can be Christian students. If we're parents, we can be Christian parents, and so on and so on and so on. We're we're saints in Christ Jesus, which simply makes us better people. There's a lot in the signature. Finally, he wishes them grace and peace, which is another bridge between Paul's two worlds. Paul is a Jewish person. Paul is a Roman person. He had a Jewish name, Saul, he had a Roman name, Paul, and he never changed his names. He always lived fully grounded in two worlds. If you go to Philippi today, it's a cool dig. I mean, it's a very, very Roman place, but they try to show you some things where Paul might have been. It's hard to find Paul. In the game that I call a get is hard to do because Paul moved so much, and there weren't very many Christians back then. But they do have a little pit that's the traditional site of Paul's imprisonment. 
I don't know that there's any way to know that he, he was really imprisoned in there, but it will help us think about the pitfalls of being different. I mean, there was a pit somewhere that Paul would have been thrown into, uh, forgetting them to be different in the way that the Bible asks us to be different. Paul would, would greet them in two ways. Chorus or grace was a common greeting if you were a Greek-speaking Roman person. Shalom is a common Jewish greeting. Uh, and so by combining the two, he's recognizing that they're saints in the world. They're Roman, but they're not quite Roman. They're new now, and this would come with a cost. You know, if it's hard to find a get when it comes to Paul, there is a really good get back down in Corinth, back down the road. After he left the Philippians, he went down to that other part of Greece and the western part of Greece, if you will. And there's a bema there, and a bema is a get. Uh, this bema is a, is a raised platform where a magistrate would dispense justice. And if Paul arrived in Corinth in 51, so did another Roman. In the year 51, Rome sent a new proconsul or governor, Lucius Junius Gallio, to govern Achaia from the capital in Corinth. He was the younger brother of the renowned Seneca, who was a Stoic philosopher and tutor to the eventual Emperor Nero, which means that when Paul was brought before Gallio in, in Acts chapter 18, he was only two degrees of separation from the man who would later kill him. Uh, Jewish residents in Corinth, you can read about it, it's Acts 18, uh, they complained about Paul. He's, again, he's asking the Corinthians to be different, right? The Jewish people living in Corinth were complaining uh, that Paul was perverting their religion, asking the Romans to enforce their religious laws. But see, Gallio saw this as just their problem and not a Roman state problem, and he dismissed the case. Because, and here's where I'm going, Corinth was sophisticated and it was diverse and it was tolerant. And if Paul had a new idea, that's fine. Everybody had a new idea. Who cares? Philippi was different. Philippi is not Corinth. I mean, the Corinthian problems, if you want to read First and Second Corinthians, are problems that have to do with diversity and what to do with that. Uh, Philippi had no diversity. It was far from Rome, and it didn't have the confidence. It was it, not the confidence of a Corinth. It was pretty much locked down and lockstep. Philippi was very proud of a military identity. You think about military towns that you might know, like uh, Columbus, Georgia, or Fort Sill, Oklahoma, or, or Pensacola Naval Air Station. I mean, the military presence would be everywhere. And all that started about 40 years before Jesus' birth. So about 100 years before Paul's riding through town uh, with a man named Octavian and Mark Anthony in what they called the Wars of the Second Triumphant. Octavian would later become Caesar Augustus, and there they defeated Brutus and Cassius, the murderers of Julius Caesar, Octavian's adopted father. And I can show you a field in Philippi that doesn't look like much, but it was a battlefield where 200,000 men at arms went to battle, and it's where the Republic of Rome became an empire. And the Philippians loved this story. They loved that it happened in their backyard. They loved that they were identified with it. And so if you're to go back to Philippians, I mean, Acts chapter 16, rather, and, and I'll just tell you the story, and then I'll read just a, a bit of it to you. You can see how to be un-Roman unleashes a hair-trigger response. Unlike Gallio, who's just not going to hear it, I mean, the, right, the Jewish residents of Corinth, they're mad because Paul is different. Who cares? Uh, they very much care if something different is happening in their world. It goes like this, Paul and Silas, another member of the team, are walking to the marketplace, and they're, they're tracked by a slave girl with the, quote, spirit of divination. Now, remember, she's a slave, and 
Paul identifies with the slaves. Uh, he can see her. But Paul's not on his game this morning. You, when you read the story in Acts chapter 16, Paul is, is, is a little, maybe he's a little cranky. Things hadn't gone uh, well uh, somewhere within the movement. But remember, Paul's not Jesus. He's a mixed bag, just like us. And, and he's, he's, maybe he's just having a bad day. So as an aside, he cast out the demon, not because he shows any compassion, but because quite frankly, she's getting on his last nerve. But the problem is, is that she made her owner's money. Now remember, are we going to be different in the way that the Bible asks us to be different? Because what you see in this story is a lot of familiar stuff. You see someone who is used for income, someone who's been objectified, uh, someone who doesn't matter, and suddenly she's seen as someone healed, and that's a bad thing. Uh, you know, sometimes wrong is right, and we see that here in the case of Acts chapter 16. It's the 19th verse, and I'll read it to you. But when her owners saw that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them before the magistrates, they said, These men are disturbing our city. They are Jews and are advocating customs that are not lawful for us Romans to adopt or observe. And the crowd joined in attacking them. The magistrates had them stripped of their clothing and ordered them to be beaten with rods. And after they had given them a severe flogging, they threw them into prison and ordered the jailer to keep them securely. And following these instructions, he put them in the innermost cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. And it could have been the pit that they show you when you go to Philippi. It could have been somewhere else. What I want you to hear is there's no sophistication in this story. There's no subtle argument. There's no subtle case decision like in the case of Gallio. They are not Roman. They are other. They are dangerous. And I find it curious that Paul never pulled his citizenship card here. You know, there are there's a there's a thing I like to call Roman conformity that'll make a lot of sense if you think about it. I'll say this to people who travel to places where the Roman Empire would have been. So for instance, if you go to Roman Britain or Roman Spain, Roman France, but even Roman North Africa, uh, Roman Roman Turkey, anywhere like this, Roman Syria, Roman Palestine, uh, you're going to find Roman conformity. I like to say, and this is, I hope you'll laugh, uh, the Empire of Rome is kind of like going to Applebee's. Uh, everywhere you go, it's the same menu, same food, uh, same experience, same, you know, fake Tiffany lamp over the same booth. And so with Rome, you're going to get the same Cardo, that's the main street that runs to the middle of the ruin, same marketplace, same theater. Uh, the Romans had this imagination that you had to be the same to be Roman, and so they would replicate their empire everywhere they went, and especially in a place like Philippi that's so far from Rome and they really don't have a lot of creative people, they're going to be uber, uber, uber Roman. And my point is this, Philippi would be such a faithful and generous little church. These people would be so courageous to step out of the lane, if you will, to the point that I honestly believe they were Paul's favorite favorite church. Uh, he wrote them such a hopeful, happy letter that we have no idea what cost it would be to be different. But we can see in the scene from Acts chapter 16 how one little mistake, one little misstep, one little not showing up at the right place in terms of what your neighbors might expect from you, maybe one word said out of, out of hand uh, could land you in jail. Uh, could land you arrested, could land you beaten, uh, could land you hurt, if only social suicide. It would cost them to be different. Which will leave this podcast with a question. How does our faith carry a cost? Or does it? How about this? 
If we're such a good Christian, why are we more of an insurance risk? Well, thanks, everybody, and, and we'll just keep tracking Philippi, and I hope I'll see you at the next podcast. Take care.